Before we begin today's podcast, I'd like to address two off-track incidents that have made the headlines in the last couple of weeks. I and my panellists wholeheartedly condemn racist, discriminatory and offensive language used by members of the F1 community. These remarks are unacceptable and warrant strong action in response. Like all sports, F1 still has some way to go towards ensuring greater inclusivity and diversity. But the response from the F1 community, including teams, drivers and the online community, in condemning these remarks has been overwhelmingly positive and has exemplified the steps F1 has taken so far towards ensuring this. And with that, let's get on with discussing a dramatic Canadian Grand Prix here on the Armchair F1 podcast. As ever, you can follow the Armchair F1 podcast across social media. Listen to us on all major streaming platforms as well. We're now on Amazon Podcasts as well. So you've got a wide array, whether we're on Spotify, whether we're on Apple, Google, you name it, we're there. So give a listen to us on there. But yes, loads to talk about um, in the world of Formula One, of course. Um, I've got to say a very action-packed Canadian Grand Prix, of course, a wet qualifying certainly helping in that regard as well. But Max Verstappen on top again after the Canadian Grand Prix, certainly made to work hard for his victory on race day. But as we leave Canada and come to Silverstone, Max Verstappen is 46 points ahead of Charles Leclerc, sorry, Sergio Perez even, in the Drivers' Championship and 49 points ahead of Charles Leclerc. It's safe to say that for all the talk we were having at the start of the season of Leclerc potentially running away with this, since that Australian Grand Prix, Red Bull have won all six races since then, Max Verstappen, five of them. This is fair to say, it's turning into a season where Verstappen is taking quite a lead in the championship, but lest we not forget that 90-point swing since Australia could still work in Charles Leclerc's favour. Well, I have two guests to talk about today. And in many ways, we're back to the old raw sport tradition, except I'm sitting in Josh's chair today and I quite like it. Josh and Joe, welcome back to the Armchair F1 podcast. Um, Josh, let's come to you firstly. I mean, a pretty dominant weekend throughout for Max Verstappen, you know, in control of the car and mastering the conditions in qualifying, very much in control on race day and yes under pressure from Carlos Sainz towards the end but it didn't seem in any way to me that Carlos Sainz was going to get past uh no and uh it's lovely to be back first of all um and hello to Jeff Bezos now that you're on Amazon podcast I don't think <laughs> hello to him um it is yeah it I it, it was an interesting race I guess because Verstappen's strategy and certainly the Red Bull strategy seemed to have worked out at the start because when Perez obviously pulled off Verstappen, obviously they pit on the virtual safety car. They keep, and Ferrari keeps science out. And from then you think that is advantage, obviously Red Bull, but then obviously then the, I can't remember when exactly, um, because Canada feels like a long time ago, the Sonoda incident that then brings out the, the next safety car, obviously then helps out science and sort of bounces out. But um, it, it just seemed like Max had, like you said, was in, in control, knew exactly what to do with, with his tyres throughout. Um, and it just, it just seemed like science just could not close up mm. on that, on that uh, long straight. And um, it always just seemed like he was within, obviously, the DRS um, margin, but he, it just didn't seem like he had enough. And just the longer it went on, the more assured Max, is, uh, Max looked out there. And um, yeah, it was a really good weekend for him and for Red Bull as well, given that, you know, they obviously lost the other Red Bull car mm. to uh, technical issues. So 
all in all, a very, very assured performance from Max this happened. Indeed, of course, Sergio Perez retiring on lap eight of the race, of course, having had a difficult qualifying in the wet as well. Certainly after all of Perez's good results in weeks, recent weeks, not a great weekend for him. Um, Joe, we've got a, We've spoken in the past about Red Bull this season. We've spoken a lot about its high top end speed, which gives it that straight line speed advantage that could potentially nullify the DRS. But I think it's one thing that was really interesting, you know, sectors one or two where you could have argued Ferrari may have had some kind of edge or were more likely to have an edge there over Red Bull than to than compared to sector three with the longer straights. You know, science may have closed the gap to Verstappen in those scenarios, but certainly never really got close enough to mount much of a challenge to Verstappen when it came to the two DRS straights in sector three. Well, first of all, it's delightful to be back on the Armchair F1 podcast, now powered by AWS. However, I would have potentially preferred it to be powered by the Red Bull Powertrains unit because yet again in Canada, it looked like definitely the most powerful unit on the grid, if not necessarily the most reliable. We still don't know where those engines are in terms of reliability. Um, yeah, the, the, the two things about Ferrari, first of all, we know they have a slightly lower straight line speed, but when you combine that with the fact that sh- neither Charles Leclerc nor Carlos Sainz throughout the weekend could get off the slow corners quickly enough it meant that having drs or not double drs even down the two straights that are adjacent to each other it didn't really make a huge amount of difference and for all red bull's minor issues with front end turn in it didn't seem to be a problem for max verstappen all weekend in any conditions i definitely credit him with the with the dominance of this victory over the red bull itself uh, what i talked about on other podcasts and i've done a little dissection of his racecraft max verstappen's runs through the race of cha- through the wall of champions the final chicane all weekend were just about perfect i didn't spot a single mistake there and when you get that right say say carlos Sainz is eight tenths behind coming out of the hairpin going down the straight he gets it to about three four tenths going into the wall of champions if you're at that level and you take your racing line like max verstappen does science is not going to be able to get past because of the dirty air because of the lower straight line speed the most telling thing about those last 20 laps for all the fight that was going on the proximity of those two cars Max Verstappen never looked like he was defending. He never looked like he was ceding time in order to keep Carlos Sainz behind. He was just running his own race. Drink, everybody. It's my meme. Ed Straw of the race. He's given him a 10 out of 10. First 10 out of 10 for any driver this year. I completely understand. An absolutely incredible weekend from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I mean, let's just put some context here because you mentioned Verstappen being far ahead compared to anyone else really throughout the weekend. Just going back to that wet qualifying, Verstappen six and a half tenths ahead of Fernando Alonso in second place, eight tenths ahead of Carlos Sainz in third. A resounding amount of time to make up in just one lap. And we've sort of spoken about Verstappen's prowess in the rep before. And I'd always kind of thought, a lot of this just came from Brazil 2016, where, yes, he did very well in the wet, but there had not, I don't think, been such a resounding wet weather drive from Verstappen like that since it really confirmed that level. But I think qualifying in Canada, I think, really demonstrated that in the wet, Verstappen really got some fantastic laps together there. And I think perhaps that prowess that so many people talked about in Brazil 2016 was very much qualified. And again, Joe, of course, all the talk there of Verstappen defending right at the end of the race, well, you say defending, just seemingly in control. And I think that's the thing that's really, I guess, typifying Verstappen now. That I'm not saying that it seems too easy for him, but he's certainly putting himself in a position as as it goes now, race by race, 
He just seems in total control of the car in whatever track we're at. It's very difficult to disagree. Um, at this point, the argument that Max Verstappen is the best driver in Formula One, as someone who bangs the drum of Charles Leclerc, it's really, really difficult to disagree with that. Max Verstappen has more victories from Charles Leclerc polls this year than Charles Leclerc has from Charles Leclerc polls this season. Mm. The guy's ability just to get through the field and when he does hold the lead at tracks like Miami and even here is just is just excellent. I mean, he was he was brilliant last year. But 2022, somehow Max Verstappen's found a whole new level. And unless Ferrari seriously get their act together, I can't see anyone catching him unless serious bad luck goes his way. Mm. And of course, Verstappen has, aside from the Monaco, he has still won every session that he has finished this season, which is, uh, I can see Joe's reaction, an expletive was used at that time and just the disbelief and I guess it is almost a disbelief Josh because Verstappen it's fair to say reached a whole nother level in his driving in 2021 but 2022 it seems like we've reached an even greater level it's interesting because some people find you know winning the first title of anything is obviously a massive achievement for some people and so for some people it's it's then becomes a burden to self follow it up and defend it and for others it's sort of a massive stress reliever and it allows them to sort of, you know, they've been there before, they've done that, they have that assurance that they know that they what they did the previous year or whatever has has got them there and they can sort of, you know, re- relax and take it in a bit more. And it feels like with Max that that stress has gone off his back really of, of winning that first title, albeit, yes, in very controversial mm-hmm. circumstances, but it's done... It just, it just free... It, it, I feel like it frees them up a bit more and it feels like, you know, when he has a bad performance, I guess it's not as he's not as it, to me. It doesn't feel as despondent mentally. It's sort of like, okay, yeah, this was a bad one, but there's still, you know, there's still time. There's still places. There's still races to go, and so, yeah, it, it just feels as though he's just mentally just more relaxed and more freed up, and and it shows in his in his performances. He's got more confidence in his abilities because, you know, he knows it's already taken him to the mountaintop, and. Yeah, yeah, it just comes. It just feels like as though he's, he's. I guess again, more assured in in his performances as well. Well, let's talk about who I would still argue is his main title rival this season. Charles Leclerc, of course, forty nine points behind Verstappen, falling further back as a result, of course, of taking engine penalties firstly in Canada and then having to make a recovery drive from the back row of the grid up to fifth place. Um, Joe, in many ways, a weekend of damage limitation for Leclerc, but perhaps the first of many with Ferrari's power unit problems and the unreliability that has caused Leclerc to have to take on extra parts this season. And I think certainly the argument to make with more weekends like this coming for Leclerc, that makes Verstappen's run to the title even easier. Just the, you know, the scale of Ferrari's engine problem at this point, even a few races ago, the amount of components they'd changed. And going into the Canadian Grand Prix, I think every single component was above the season allocation apart from the energy storage units. So we're talking seven out of eight of the fundamental components. That's how badly Ferrari have gotten this wrong. And you're right, Cam, this is not going to be the only race where Charles Leclerc mm-hmm. is going to have to do this. And Canada is one of the easier tracks to get by historically. So it just lends more credence to the idea that this is Max Verstappen's championship and nothing else. Leclerc got driver of the day, semi-fairly. He made good progress through the field. 
However, honestly, his fifth place could have been a podium if Ferrari had not done their usual Ferrari thing and screwed up a simple pit stop. When he was stuck behind Esteban Ocon, I was looking at the deltas, and had Ferrari had a quicker than average pit stop, bear in mind the average was slightly slower because of the sheer amount of bad pit stops, McLaren, uh, that we got through at the Canadian Grand Prix, all that Ferrari had to do was simple, and Charles Leclerc would come out in front of Lance Stroll's DRS train, which included four cars. Typically, Ferrari had a problem with the jacks, almost six seconds in the pits, and that was the difference. He ended up behind them, and although Charles Leclerc did clear that DRS train eventually, the time it took, at least for me, was the difference between being able to catch the Mercedes after the safety car restart and not. So yet again, a great weekend of damage limitation for Leclerc, but Ferrari continuing to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, Ferrari and pit stops and strategy, there's just not a good combination and I, I, fear, I fear it's just a combination that motivates the cynics at every opportunity because obviously Monaco, now Canada. And, you know, I, I always wonder if Declare is ever given a fully reliable car, whether he would have the opportunity to win if Ferrari know how to make a pit stop. Um, Josh, I guess rounding off the title fight and that um, battle there quickly, of course, we saw, I guess you could argue the first bit of bad luck for Sergio Perez this season as well, of course, having that engine retirement. That, Of course, the many engine retirements that befell Verstappen earlier on in the season, Perez having the first of his here in Canada and very much putting him much closer towards Charles Leclerc points-wise. Um, do you think we've sort of been talking up Perez recently as a, someone who perhaps could have been having a greater role in the championship fight and his form being a much more impressive this season but given how I would say diabolical his weekend was in Canada by almost every metric relative for Verstappen do you think that if given now the Claire is catching back up I would say likely to take second spot in the championship again do you think we're going to start to see a more firmer hands with things like team orders from Red Bull going forward um it is an interesting thing to think about I I do think you know it, it it is going to be something that is going to be on the mind of Christian Horner, um, especially, you know, with, again, with the unknowns of reliabilities and if there's a secure result to be had, if there's, say, Perez is leading Silverstone and Max is second and, you know, we have no idea how many more DNFs are going to come down the line. If they want to really sew up the win, then I, I wouldn't be surprised if they make that call because I guess it's a guaranteed result in the short term, I guess, and then it, it, it gives them one minor less headache to think about in the long term. So, it, I mean, it, it's frustrating for Checo, obviously, his weekend. Um, I think now he and Max have had sort of the similar number of uh, mechanical issues now, I think, for this year. So, you know, it's not as though one has been having sheer more bad luck than the other. Um, and I, I'm sure he's going to be keen to sort of, you know, by, uh, produce a strong performance at Silverstone. Um, but, yeah, it, it is, you know, it is a reminder that some, that, you know, these things happen and Red Bull may need to, yeah, like I said, sort of consider, you know, it, when it, if there's a such a situation where they can swap the drivers around and sort of get those cars home and with, with those points, then, then they may have to, um, given as sort of we expect Ferrari to be stronger going forward. And even as whisper it just quietly, but Mercedes are quietly sort of making toe by toe steps, you know, to, to catch up to the, to the other two. Well, I think a very damaging weekend for Perez, a weekend of damage limitation for Leclerc and a resounding success for Verstappen. That's really how you sum up the title fight after leaving Canada. But there's one big question that I've got. Carlos Sainz, 
a weekend of redemption or still more disappointment at missing out missing out on that first victory we're going to be talking about that next here on the armchair f1 podcast Now, it's fair to say 2022 hasn't been the best season for Carlos Sainz. There's been, I say unusual mistakes, but there's been mistakes that perhaps have been uncharacteristic of the last couple of years of Carlos Sainz. Someone seen as almost quite consistent and certainly with with Charles Leclerc last year, picking up consistent results and maximising opportunities that he was given. We've seen some uncharacteristic mistakes. We have seen some stroke of bad luck as well, particularly in Imola, but... There's been a lot of pressure around Carlos Sainz this year. Obviously, he had the contract extension earlier on in the season, but the pressure with, of course, the t- a title fight potentially brewing within Ferrari against Red Bull as well, and the impression that Sainz perhaps has been collapsing under the pressure or just not performing as well as he should be. Sainz, you remember at this point, is on 102 points, putting him fifth in the championship behind the ultra-consistent George Russell in the Mercedes has led to somewhat, you know, arguably fairly questioning science at the top team. Of course, he's never really been in this position before. And maybe it's that exposure that he's still taking time to. But Joe, I want to come to you first, as I guess someone who has sort of followed Ferrari and followed a lot of Ferrari drivers over the year and Ferrari drivers in title fights. The big question, I guess, that always comes over with Carlos Sainz is, is he a second driver to Leclerc or is he someone who can fight on that equal par. And many people were saying coming into this year that Carlos Sainz should be given as much opportunity to fight with Charles Leclerc if the Ferrari was able to produce a championship winning car. Well, they're in a position where they're producing a car within the title fight, but he's certainly not been living up perhaps to that potential to fight with Leclerc equally for the title. I mean, what, what do you think to that? Do you think this is just a case of Sainz underperforming just now getting used to a title fight? Or do you think we're seeing the limits of his potential relative to Leclerc? It's a difficult It's a difficult one. And I think partly it, Carlos Sainz is the victim of his own overhyping because of all the people who said that he's a better driver than Charles Leclerc after last year, where he barely managed to outscore Leclerc thanks to an awful lot of bad luck against Charles. And I've, I just never bought it then. I never bought that he was going to be the, the bona fide Ferrari lead driver. But even from this position, it's pretty worrying just how quickly the Ferrari 1-2 structure seems to have established itself. There is no competitive justification now uh, to, to just let Carlos Sainz win over Charles Leclerc. Leclerc needs every point he can get after such a violent swing against Ferrari in the championship. I still believe Carlos Sainz is a race-winning quality driver. I honestly believe he's one of the best drivers in Formula 1 history never to win a race. The crazy thing is, though, Cam, he hasn't really got the car underneath him. We know that Charles Leclerc is the better teammate. We know that Leclerc is... Until, until Canada, at least, unbeaten in the qualifying battle against Sainz, which is very worrying um, in terms of what one versus one form. But Sainz, yeah, he's got a high race IQ, but honestly, the Red Bull has been so clear of the Ferrari in the last few rounds that even though Canada is the kind of blueprint for a Carlos Sainz win, Leclerc down the order, late safety car, slight tyre advantage on the car ahead, track where you can easily overtake, the reason Carlos Sainz didn't win that race, it wasn't because he wasn't good enough. It's just because the combination of Max Verstappen having a 10 out of 10 weekend and the RB18 being some distance clear of the F175. I still think Carlos Sainz is going to win one race before the end of the year, but um, he's certainly not a championship contender. 
Yeah, and I think this is a really incre- interesting question, Josh, because Joe mentioned, I guess, the overhyping of Sainz. And I was always, I can always remember the early days of Carlos Sainz and the fact he was, let's not forget, passed over um, by Verstappen when the Red Bull seat um, opened up in 2016 to replace Danny Kvyat. Unfairly, would... <laughs> unfairly, I'm with that. Sainz deserved that promotion. Sainz, yeah, easily make the argument that Sainz deserved the promotion, but I would say that within the Red Bull, there's nothing you can say Verstappen has done to not justify it. And and even then, Sainz was always a driver. He was there or thereabouts. He was not someone I would say I particularly noticed or rated much amongst the top drivers, I would say, until at least his time at McLaren, which was when I would kind of say was I was taking more notice of him there. But it's an interesting thing with Carlos Sainz because whenever opportunities have presented themselves um, for him to take a victory, I'm thinking most notably Monza back in 2020 before this year, it seems like he's not really had the final push to go and take that victory. Now, Josh, is this a matter of the car? Is it a matter, of course, under the old aero regulations that, you know, however quicker that McLaren was back in Monza compared to the Alpha Tauri, he wouldn't have just been able to make the move? Or do you think that there's something intrinsic to Carlos Sainz as a driver that has meant when these opportunities have presented themselves, he's just not been able to take it so far? You know, the term, I guess, that I'm trying, I, I guess, comes to mind. And I, I've been trying, and it, wait, as you've been talking there, I've been trying to sort of articulate my thoughts a bit. He's a bit of a sleeper hit, Carl Sainz. Mm. He's sort of, he's not like a, I, I, and, you know, there's been a lot of very talented young drivers that have obviously come through, but he was never someone, at least in my opinion, that stood out to me as a, a championship winning potential from the off. I think it was someone who, Grew, I guess, grew into himself, put in some really good performances, and sort of grew and developed further. And it feels like, yeah, he is sort of. I guess if F one had a sleeper hit, he is sort of someone that comes to mind because he sort of grown and developed into that role. And suddenly, you know, suddenly he got to a place where he he had outgrown uh, what was then Toro Rosso. Then he went to McLaren because that seemed to be the next step. And he sort of had a very mixed time there. And, and but sort of towards the end, started to rise at about just about the time when the next step was Ferrari, I guess. He's, he's always been someone who's sort of taken sort of step by step and it hasn't really lit it up immediately. So I mean, there's something I, I, I don't, do I see him winning a championship in the future? I, I'm less confident on that now than maybe I was at the start of the season, um, which is a bit of a shame. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. Um, because you don't want to say, and you never want to say someone's reached their ceiling, especially someone because he's still relatively youngish in the in the driver landscape. But you know where, what's I guess what's left for him next? What's that next step? Because he's sort of taken all these sort of stepping stones. What is the next step? And you wonder whether, I, yeah, you don't. I don't. I, I'm not going to say it. I'm definitely not going to say he's reached the ceiling. But I'm not going to be forced into that position. But it just does feel as though. He something has to go his way and something has to break his way now. Something external to his progress has to break his way for him to sort of ascend. You know what I mean? Like something mm. has to happen. Like a driver, another driver's performance has to drop off massively, or some you know pairs of the staff have to or Leclerc all have to have like real reliability issues, like that sort of thing. So it's it's tricky and it's difficult. And again, F one is a weird sport where quickly you can outgrow one team and then realize you're not 
up with another team and you're sort of randomly in between. You're a bit of a, you know, in football, you have the yo-yo club term. I guess you're sort of a yo-yo team in terms of F1 as well. So it's, it's yeah, like Joe said, it's a really difficult thing to sort of say now when there's still a lot of the season left to go. I think something's really interesting about Carl Sainz. I like, I like the sleeper hit sort of analogy. I really like that. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to compare him to Sam Fender in a way quickly because obviously Sam Fender was the, not the headliner on the pyramid stage on Friday night, but he was second to Charles Leclerc. So I'm guessing in this instance where Billy Eilish is Charles Leclerc and Sam Fender, uh, Carlos Sainz is Sam Fender, hear this analogy out, right? Because they're two artists in a big team. So, yeah, two artists on the big stage, two drivers in a big team who are still very young and only going to get better. And I guess the question is with Charles Leclerc. Charles Leclerc is still, you know, in many ways younger than Carlos Sainz, still has so much more potential to achieve. I guess is he, I think a lot of the Carlos Sainz dynamic matters here in the sense that he is the number two to a young driver who's still got potential. It's not like he's number two to Lewis Hamilton where, there's a time where Lewis Hamilton's going to drop off and he's going to fall and there. You could almost swap the roles in the team a little bit like you could see with George Russell and Lewis Hamilton. It's almost a feeling that, you know, Carlos Sainz is always going to be Sam Fender in that he's always going to be stuck behind Charles Leclerc in a way that fame and talent and development, well, actually not talent, but development means that Sam Fender's always going to be stuck behind Billy Eilish. Can I say I much prefer Sam Fender to Billy Eilish in this instance? Um, Josh, I mean, yeah, do you see this as just a thing that he's going to be, science is going to be perennially behind Declare just because of the rate of development? I was going to help you out with the comparison. He's, he's, he's really good. He's, he, he's had some star making turns in some indie movies and he's a really good supporting actor in the blockbuster. But is he going to be the leading man? I guess is, mm. is the question. Is he going to be. Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe, and I have uh, we've we've talked about the Oscar race, um, unrelated subject, and maybe Joe, you'd like to weigh in on this because you have interests in both music and movies to make some sort of comparison to Carl Sainz. But it feels like you know he might be at his best an, an Oscar contender for a supporting actor role. Will he be leading man material? Is I'm I'm not entirely sure. Genuinely, both of you, what the hell are you talking about? The last. <laughs> The last couple of minutes have been a complete mind screw for me. Hey, Josh, are you say, are you trying to suggest, Josh, that he's Jesse Plemons? I, to Benedict well, Cumberbatch being Charles Leclerc. As for you, Cam, how can you possibly compare Carlos Sainz Jr., a man from Madrid, Spain, to Sam Fender, the kid from Tyneside? I'm just trying to I'm just trying to come up with something that seems Slightly relevant, slightly hip and happening, slightly, you know, down with the kids and all that. It's, I mean, I've, enjo- <laughs> I've enjoyed this massively, but I don't think we've progressed this at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the argument falls apart, though, because Sam Fender is probably a bit better than Billie Eilish. They're both well, no, great, 100% but- better. That is that is true. And I guess I guess it's a argument of development almost that you know Billy Eilish you could argue is the younger the younger the younger run here with more worldwide shall we say potential by I'd say more the nature of a music and driving actually yeah the analogy the well, analogy Billie, does fall apart from a talent spot Billy Eilish has got a brother who's an incredibly talented producer that helps her out mm. an awful lot Charles Leclerc's younger brother is a driver who looks pretty average even in Formula 3 
That is true. But I, I understand. I understand what you mean, though, because Billie Eilish and her brother they made music in their bedroom, and from then you could tell they were going to be really interesting artists to follow. Where Sam Fender, I guess he he made his name from doing gigs and doing more mm. gigs and sort of building and making progress and developing and growing. Joe, do you now see the analogy? There you go. I've tried to rescue it. <laughs> what, 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 and he's supposed to be Carlos Sainz, whose father was a rally driver, a two-time world champion. I mean, Sam Fender's dad made guitars. Have you have you heard Sam Fender say "Si, Senor"? I haven't, I, not yet, but I'm sure someone will get him to do it. I really hope whoever's listening to this has enjoyed the last <laughs> few minutes as much as I have, because I am. Am I on LSD, or has the last five minutes actually happened? You know, I, it was. I, I feel I tried. I tried. I tried something. It's a metaphor that's collapsed under its own steam. Let's move away from it. Let's get back to Carlos you, Sainz you tried, some, just... you tried something, it hasn't worked. Do you work for Cognizant Aston Martin Formula One team? That is exactly who I work for, Joe. Yes, I've been hiding it all this time. But let's finish off with this quickly. Carlos Sainz, I guess the big question now to ask is, for this season, for 2022 in particular, what I think can you expect from Carlos Sainz or what should Carlos Sainz be aiming for? Should he be aiming to beat Charles Leclerc in the intra-team battle? Should he be aiming to be the best of the number two, so beat Sergio Perez? Or is it simply a case of accruing as much points to give Ferrari a Constructors' Championship victory, which will likely involve beating George Russell? What is his expectations? Joe, start with you. I feel like there are three things he needs to work on as a bare minimum for this year to be a success. He's not going to beat Charles Leclerc, and I don't think it's an expectable, a realistic target because Leclerc is the number one. He needs to cut down the qualifying deficit to Leclerc by at least 25% because there there's a couple of positions to be gained, one of which could be at a Ferrari suitable track, Sergio Perez. Uh, he needs to beat George Russell and Lewis Hamilton in the driver's standings unless Mercedes massively improve the W13 because by all accounts, it looks like they're more I mean, they're developing for the future. They've more or less binned off both championships this year and he needs to win his first race this year. Uh, there are going to be more chances for Carlos Sainz to win a race, I'm absolutely certain. Canada may not have been the best one, but not getting a win in that car, it's yeah, it's not going to look good. Josh, is the, are you saying the same as Joe there? I mean, put simply, he has to be, if Max and uh, Charles are in a class of their own, he has to be best of the rest for me. Mm. He's got to be best of the rest. He's got. He's in a car that certainly should be, you know, if not competing with those two for the for skill, he should be, he's in a car that's better than a Mercedes at the moment. And he's in a car that's level, maybe slightly, maybe slightly less better than Red Bull, but certainly best of the rest for me. That should be the target. Yeah, I would say, I think, you know, fundamentally, if Carlos Sainz is going to stake his claim as someone who could win a world championship in the future and could deserve, you know, the chance by Ferrari to have that, he has to beat Sergio Perez at a bare minimum out of and he has to win that number two rivalry and at least i would say there has to be races where it's got to be if he's winning verstappen has to come in second in the claire third and i think that'd be the only way that ferrari would probably allow him to win a race but he has to be the driver who does that he'll get more chances i think but will he take him that's another question in itself um we're going to be rounding up the rest of canada we need to talk about mercedes we need to talk about lewis hamilton and we need to talk about Fernando Alonso. I guess you could say it's a resurgence of the old timers next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Right, before we go on and ruin any more F1 with comparing it to the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, I want to talk about Lewis Hamilton, who 
in some ways, like Diana Ross has had a bit of a lull in recent years, but came back with a vengeance in Canada. Of course, his first podium in Bahrain, you know, I think for many people, they would have expected more Lewis Hamilton podiums between now and Canada. But I guess such has been the nature of the 2022 season where Lewis Hamilton has had some weekends where arguably he's been better than George Russell and has got more out of the car, despite George Russell's uber consistency, still keeping up his record of finishing in the top five at every race so far. Lewis Hamilton getting on the podium in Canada. It's fair to say, Josh, um, Lewis was without doubt, I'd say satisfied with that podium in Canada more than some of the wins that he's had in recent years. And I guess it speaks to both the way that obviously the difficulties he's had with the car this season, but I guess you, maybe you could argue as well, uh, a sort of confidence starting to return in Lewis Hamilton's driving that might've been hit of late. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it's reflected in the company he was sort of keeping throughout the race. You know, he was, keep, he was obviously, obviously with his teammate, he was obviously, you know, they were, they were bunched quite close, but they were, pace wise they were matching and sometimes even going faster than the two up in front of them and that's that's obviously hugely um encouraging uh for lewis and we know you know he's sort of a driver who sort of thrives off you know if the car's going well he sort of thrives off that that's where his confidence of fuel flows in fuels in both work um and yeah it, it i i think you know it it demonstrated to him the performance obviously demonstrates to him i guess this, the, the car has maybe a higher ceiling that was then was previously i guess perceived um and obviously we know he has a very strong history at, at canada um so that those and those sort of things coming together with his first win coming in montreal and then being able to pick up a really str- another strong performance again i think yeah, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they go with with Silverstone, um, and uh, because obviously, you know, I don't know how much of the bouncing the porpoising is going to hurt, especially when going around at cops and stuff. But um, yeah, a really strong weekend from them. A lot to sort of be encouraged by, and you know, Mercedes second half of the year tend to come on quite strongly. I'm not sure about this year because maybe they'll be looking forward to beyond that but a lot to a lot of work of, of good things is a build off yeah indeed and joe i guess you could make the argument obviously canada a track that lewis hamilton has historically always done very well at one it's always been favorable to him and so you could argue maybe the the setting the location might have helped him there but you know let's not lie here seven tenths ahead of george russell in q3 outpacing him all weekend in the race Again, Lewis Hamilton taking advantage of the strategy and just making every opportunity work for him consistently quicker than George Russell, not really feeling like he was going to be threatened by his teammate. Is this perhaps the, a sign of things to come for the rest of the season, especially as it seems the Mercedes is slowly starting to get more consistently up towards the title fight and is at least solidly the third best team at every track, potentially pushing on the top two at, at certain tracks? Or is this just a one-off thing linked to Lewis Hamilton being in Canada and having an inspired weekend? And, you know, fundamentally the uber consistency that George Russell has had compared to Lewis Hamilton is going to be what keeps Russell ahead as the season goes on. 
Russell's got a pretty sizable points advantage already, and with the FIA's technical directive coming in at the next round, not Montreal, Mercedes could well be hamstrung in terms of their developments mm. and limiting the the, uh, the vertical forces. And in the last few rounds, it's actually not been porpoising that's been the problem. It's been bottoming the car, quite literally hitting the ground. Yeah. Montreal's pretty smooth. It wasn't a major problem. Silverstone, despite being a former airfield, is actually pretty bumpy, so that could be fairly painful. But... He loves Montreal. Montreal loves him. We all love Montreal. It's, it was that kind of weekend. It would have actually been a pretty major story had George Russell out-qualified him. And you say the seven-tenths gap, I think it's worth pointing out that that is overwhelmingly skewed by the fact that Russell went out on dry tyres in the second half of Q3. Track was drying out. It's reasonable to assume Russell could well have, could well have out-qualified Lewis Hamilton on the same tyres. But there was no there was no hiding that form when it comes to the race. Russell was pretty good. He made some decent forward progress, but he was not on the same level as Lewis throughout throughout the entire race day. And with the car currently where it is, miles behind the Red Bull and the Ferrari, but much better than anyone else, even the Alpine on pure race pace. A quiet race from Lewis Hamilton is about the best you can currently expect. This is not going to be the last podium he gets this year. I think he'll probably get at least one other before the summer break. He should be targeting that at the absolute minimum. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that Lewis finishing in the top five of the championship is unusual anymore. But again, if that car is going to be a race winning car, Mercedes have a hell of a lot of work to do. Indeed, and obviously it'll be interesting to see in terms of the development from Mercedes where they seek to go next. In particular, do they turn attention to 2023? Does that help Lewis or George? And yeah, I guess obviously a lot of questions over Lewis Hamilton's future contract as well and whether he'll sign on past 2023. But weekends like this certainly encouraging for him let's move away from Mercedes now let's go over to Alpine I feel you've given us a perfect segue there and Alpine for me consistently the fourth fastest team this season especially in terms of race results but would you say Joe that that Canada was an opportunity squandered for Alpine especially for Fernando Alonso qualifying second on the grid and then in the race obviously he had issues with the MG UK and the power unit Um, He, of course, got his penalty on the final lap as well that docked him from 7th to ninth. But is this uh, opportunity lost for Alpine? Or do you think, with all factors considered, Alonso and Alpine maximised the best they could that weekend? Alonso was very impressive in qualifying and a lot of people were actually disappointed that he didn't get onto pole position. He just looked so good all the way through all of Saturday's running. Even in FP3, he was completely on it. Uh, But with Alpine, I'm beginning to get really frustrated with just how unable they are to convert one lap pace into a full race performance. On so many weekends, they look like they have the one lap pace advantage over Mercedes. But when it comes to the final race, they just disappear. And Alonso, for all the hard work he put in, Towards the end of the race, he was relegated to defending against two Alfa Romeos, which if you look at the relative performances of the teams last year especially, is pretty inexcusable. And in the end, Fernando Alonso was unsuccessful in that defence. Granted, he kept the cars behind, but he had to break sporting regulations to do it and was rightly awarded that five-second penalty. There are only three teams in Formula One this year who have not secured one top-five finish. Williams, obviously, Aston Martin, repeat, and Alpine. With the fourth fastest car and so many races of attrition so far this year, that's pretty shocking. Yeah, and obviously you could make the argument that Fernando Alonso has been hit by bad luck many, many times this season. But Josh, Alpine are an interesting prospect because, you know, without doubt, it seems that they're, they're in the position they are in some ways because obviously the pace of the car, in some ways as well because many other teams in the midfield have underperformed. And Alfa Romeo's ceiling, I guess, from last year 
they've been very impressive, but their ceiling was very low to start off with anyway. One, I think the really interesting things um, with this season is how much people have slept on Esteban Ocon. And again, Ocon, you know, didn't have a great qualifying in Canada, obviously starting in seventh, which you'd say is reasonably average, but then managing to outpace Alonso and finish the race ahead to get ahead of him. Again, caveat Alonso's MG UK problem, but certainly Ocon's a driver that I think many people have been sleeping on this season. And when you look at the driver's standings, when you see that, yes, Alonso has 18 points, but Ocon's got 39 is consistently around Lando Norris and Valtteri Bottas, who would, you would say outside Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes are the best of the midfield drivers this season. Do you think this is a case perhaps of Ocon just not getting the respect he deserves maybe? I sort of thought people would have him high in their estimations from last year because last year he had a pretty strong, especially the first half of the season, he had a very strong first half. Obviously, um, I think I feel like there's a curse every time someone signs a new contract. Their performances seem to sort of nosedive. There seems to be some sort of correlation. Um, uh, but uh, but uh, you know, maybe people, maybe maybe the second half of the season sort of I guess is the most recent thing people remember about Ocon, and therefore the first half was less so. But I think he's he's done really well. He just he just seems to. Um, it's funny, uh, if you play Formula 1 Fantasy, uh, and I'm not by no means plugging the game, there's issues with the game, but he is one of the more highest scoring drivers in the game because he is able to convert, and granted his qualifying performances probably definitely need to improve, but he is able to sort of rise up the grid and the pack, and maybe it's because the out, maybe it's the car, obviously, but I think there's something there that he's able to sort of extract performance from the car on, in, on race day, and um, you know, he's there's there's a growing sort of a maturity that's coming with his. I know he's had still the odd skirmish here or there, but I think he's. Yeah, I've been really impressed with his development and his growth. And again, it was it was impressive on on Sunday to see how, you know, he's been. He was able to sort of, I guess, keep his you know his teammate behind, who a lot of people thought was he was going to lose out to his teammate. Um, and you know, come comes come away in sixth place and. He's, yeah, I, I do feel like many people don't, he's quietly becoming a fixture in that top 10, mm. a regular fixture. And that's not, he's not a name, I guess, people normally pencil into that top 10 when you obviously take away the Red Bulls, Ferraris, Mercedes, and then you probably put in Lando and then by then, and then Gasly and, and you sort of start to run out of names here and he's not someone that instantly comes to mind, but he definitely should be, a, you know, a more thought after thought so i don't know a, a name that he should be a name that comes to mind for more people there we go i take it that well and let's not forget josh you did say in the predictions at the start of the season that ocon would be your biggest disappointment this season so i guess very did much I? getting yeah it's, it's it's on record josh so i guess very I much getting proven say, wrong i did also say that um science would win more races than the clan already that's something that's not going very <laughs> not very well. not well at all indeed um let's talk about another driver i guess running through the canadian grand prix joe guan yu joe and of course you've been a big fan of Valtteri bottas this season and alfa romeo but we've been saying a lot that i guess guan yu joe has been dis- has had a decent season but hasn't had the points to back it up well i think i would say from canada outpace Valtteri bottas a strong weekend from Guan Yu Zhou, who obviously has had some decent performances, but converting those into the four points that he got there, yes, in the end behind Valtteri Bottas, but I would say 
a more impressive weekend for him than for Bottas. I'm really glad you've mentioned him because I'm really getting a, bit, a little bit annoyed about just how much people are sleeping on this rookie season. Granted, it's not you know a Charles Leclerc out and Senna Lewis Hamilton level rookie year, but you know you compare this to what Schumacher, Sonoda, and especially Mazepin put forward last year. Joe is better than all three of them combined in terms of rookie season, and he has had an incredible amount of bad luck. You know, bad starts with the car, forced by clutch issues. A reliability retirement in Baku when he was ahead of Valtteri Bottas and outperforming Valtteri Bottas. You take him to Canada, a track that, as far as I'm aware, he's never raced at before. Certainly not in uh, certainly not in Formula Two. Put him in wet conditions that he's never qualified in before. Versus Valtteri Bottas, Mister One Lap Pace, who put a goddamn Williams third on the grid here less than a decade ago. And Joe outperforms him. And it's not even close. He gets into Q3 with a car that, even around this track, was liminal into Q3 at the best of times. Just a fantastic weekend. Mature, assured. He didn't get past Mick Schumacher, granted. But again, there were a bunch of issues with getting by at Canada this weekend. I think there was a lot less overtaking than a lot of us expected. The kind of weekend that we just did not get from any of the rookies last year, apart from maybe Sonoda right at the end of the season. Um, one of my drivers of the weekend, and it's about time people uh, people started paying attention to Guan Yu Zhou. I really want this Grand Prix career of his to work out. Yeah, there's so many drivers this season that are just getting slept on, which I really don't understand. We mentioned Esteban Ocon, we mentioned Guan Yu Zhou as well, and you know, the I guess the big question is, I guess, what really more do we expect from him this season going forward, particularly against Valtteri Bottas, but I guess also against other drivers and maybe who he is sort of fighting against, whether it is more the Danny Ricks, the Sebastian Vettels of the world, maybe more than that sort of upper midfield battle of Valtteri Bottas, Lando Norris and Esteban Ocon. Um, just one more driver to mention, and I guess obviously Haas's luck in the last few races, it's fair to say, has not been great. But both houses getting into Q3, qualifying, it's fair to say, Josh, very well. Magnussen in fifth, Mick Schumacher in sixth. Now, the black and yellow fag that Kevin Magnussen um, got, easily, I would say, would not have been given a black and yellow flag in past seasons. And maybe that's something that's coming from race control. But Mick Schumacher, an opportunity to score points, one that I argue he could have taken had he have not had his engine failure there. Um, you know, is that I guess the question is, how would Haas look back at this weekend? Is it they'd arguably say one of missed opportunities, but particularly with Mick Schumacher, has he done enough or maybe started to show the signs that he can turn around what has been a pretty disastrous season so far? Yeah, absolutely. I was really, really impressed with his qualifying performance. Um on the Saturday and in, as we, you know, sort of alluded to in very difficult wet conditions, um, he did a super, super job to get into Q3. So as well that Kevin Magnussen obviously, um, but I feel like now since the very first weekend, I feel like we've been saying this about Kevin Magnussen, it's becoming not the norm, but certainly, you know, it's, it's less eyebrow raising, I guess now, because we've sort of seen, he's been able to carry that car into really high positions. And, um, yeah, speaking on Schumacher specifically, I think, you know, he, he showed, I guess, on Saturday that the one lap pace is definitely there. Um, obviously, it's a bit of what if and it's a bit hard to sort of, I guess, forecast how he would have done with um, without said technical issues. Like, if he was just, how would he hold up defending the likes of the Alfa Romeos, for instance? Because I imagine 
he would have been in competition with them at some point and maybe uh, Ocon as well. How would he fare up against them? It's, it's hard to say, but I'm sure, you know, he would have certainly been fighting for points. And, um, and I think it is going to be a bit of a missed opportunity for Haas because they, sh- because the Saturday was so promising and obviously Magnus, yeah, Magnuson, you, you mentioned the flag. I mean, that really was what cost him mm. that race. And even with the safety cars and virtual safety cars, they couldn't, unfortunately uh, they were just stuck in, they were just stuck in drs trains after that they couldn't really or rather they couldn't really to get themselves away from trailing a, a group of cars per se and um it's 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 you know it's one of those where it's 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 a shame but also again highlights you know the obviously insane progress they've made this year and what they can expect as a ceiling perhaps going forward mm. I guess Rory's predictions of a Kevin Magnussen podium, I don't know if we're going to get any more of them this season, but I feel the weekend like Canada dulls the prospect of that. Well, as you can see, quite a lot to discuss from the Canadian Grand Prix up and down the field. We're going to, of course, be moving on now because we're going away from Canada. We're coming back to Blighty. It's the British Grand Prix this weekend. Always a great weekend at Silverstone. That we're going to be talking about next here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Right, I'm just going to put it out there and it's not because it's my home race. I mean, that's a big part of it, but I love the British Grand Prix. As a track, Silverstone is fantastic and it provides a real challenge for the drivers, both you know technically through Maggots and Beckett's and you know some of these really difficult sections. And of course, as well, going plenty of overtaking opportunities as well, you know, with the Hangar Straight, Brooklands. And again, you know, such a fantastic opportunity, particularly with how wide the track is as well, being on a former airfield. But if there's one thing you can say about the British Grand Prix, you are always guaranteed to get some very good racing up and down the field. And yeah, I'm, I always look forward to it. And it's not just the home spirit as well, but the British crowd certainly do turn out in force for the British Grand Prix. And you could say, yes, having always having a successful British driver in Formula One does help that. But certainly the tradition of, the UK perhaps being the home of motorsport, I think is certainly truly alive at the British Grand Prix. Um, Joe, there's been, you know, many fantastic British Grand Prix in the past. I mean, before we go on to Silverstone a bit more and discuss this weekend, is there any kind of moments in the past that stick out to you? Um, Sebastian Vettel's gearbox going at the 2013 race when he was looking absolutely Absolutely dominant and Nico Rosberg eventually coming home to win. That was a day kind of spoilt by Pirelli tyres exploding seemingly at random, but it was still a, a pretty major moment in a title race that still looked slightly alive before Vettel just absolutely annihilated it. The other obvious one, 2008, one of Lewis Hamilton's best ever victories. In fact, I think when we were ranking uh, myself, you and Will Kingswood ranked yeah. Lewis Hamilton's best five wins, I'm pretty sure Silverstone 08 was the all-time number one. Mm. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you it can't was, look past that. Yeah, it was, I think, it, well, it was number two, partly because the only one we all put down was Turkey 2020, but it was my number one and Will's number two. And, you know, for perfect reasons, that day, just the dominance that Lewis Hamilton had back in 2008, a very impressive win. And of course, Lewis Hamilton with eight British Grand Prix victories to his name as well. In some ways, it's weird that he does so well in Montreal and in the Hungaro ring, yet... He does well at Silverstone as well, a completely different track compared to the other two. Josh, um, any moments that really stuck out to you from the past about the British Grand Prix? 
I mean, Joe said it. Two thousand and eight was was the one that immediately comes to mind. So, and he explained it really well. Um, so, no, I've not really got anything to add. But again, as you've sort of said in the intro, Silverstone tends to be uh, an entertaining race for mm. one way or another. Um, and I sort of expect nothing less um, heading into this weekend. Yeah, there's always a chance of something dramatic happening over the weekend, whether that's a tyre blowout, whether that's two drivers not understanding what personal space is going into cops and some kind of accident taking place there. Um, I mean, let's just talk about the track itself. It is one of the most iconic tracks and it's a track that has changed quite a lot over the years. Now, I now my personal opinion, this isn't my favourite layout of Silverstone. I'd say my favourite layout of Silverstone remains the two, 1990 to 2009 layout, which basically for anyone listening in, it's the current layout, but the section from Abbey to Brooklyn, so it's replaced with this sort of bridge section where there's a mini chicane. Instead of going right at Abbey, you go through a left-right chicane underneath the bridge, and then there's this really fantastic sort of uphill, blind, almost blind uphill right-hander, very quick, and then into the old Brooklyn section where you then rejoin the track and go into Luffield. And uh, again, a section that's given us some quite great moves in the past. I think most notably um, 2003, a chaotic race. Indeed, of course, most notable for the Irish preacher, Niall Horan. Um, also, no, that was the guy from One Direction, I believe. Um, the uh, the Irish preacher coming onto the track on the hangar straight with cars coming down at um, 180 miles an hour. And again, I think a few uh, Jaguars and Minardis, I remember, having to uh having to dive out of the way. Of course a race as well that Cristiano De Mata and Oliver Panis in the Toyotas led for most of the race before of course we saw the fantastic Barrichello Riken in battle with Barrichello's fantastic, almost as a dummy esque move under the bridge section. I feel that itself um kind of makes that race. It's Neil Horan, not Niall Horan. That's who it is. As I said, Niall Horan was from one direction. I don't really like one direction. Um on a side note from that, Josh, I mean, Silverstone is a track where, you know, downforce is key. Sure, there's fast straights, plenty of overtaking opportunities, especially with DRS. But, you know, with the high speed corners that you have at Silverstone, downforce is crucial to success here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, who, I, as with, with that advantage, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it sort of shapes up. Um, because, uh, this track, I mean, for, for Mercedes, for example, this track is slightly better than some of the other ones we've been to, but the surface isn't going to be great. So it'll be interesting to see if they'll have pace and be able to keep up with the likes of Ferrari and Red Bull. And um, just reading some of the comments that Christian Horn has made, they're ex- Red Bull are expecting Ferrari to bring in some upgrades to that Ferrari. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what kind of effects that has if if those upgrades are there what kind of effect it has on the weekend um and yeah it, it should be yeah it, but you know besides that it should be a really interesting interesting duel between those two cars if assuming the mercedes isn't going to be there it's going to be interesting to see who has the edge because as seen last year charles leclerc had a very memorable silverstone last year and was very unlucky in some way as well and I think really interesting, Joe, and I guess we, well, let's start off with, I guess, Red Bull Ferrari here, because we've spoken so much about Red Bull having a, you know, a car that favours high top end speed this year, which in so many ways is different to a lot of the Adrian Newey cars, which emphasis ma- emphasise maximising downforce. And of course, as me, what that Red Bull have been so successful at Silverstone, especially in the V8 era, 
But also you could say, I'll give you in the last couple of years as well, of course, Max Verstappen winning um, the 70th anniversary Grand Prix back in 2020. It still pains me to say that. It's the worst name of a race that I've ever had in Formula 1. That rant aside, um, of course, Mercedes have always done very well at Silverstone over the last few years, with, again, downforce being a very significant part of that too. Do you think, though, with, I guess, the slightly different design philosophy in the Red Bull in 2022, do you think that, I guess, the advantage that they've sort of stereotypically had at Silverstone could be nullified and Ferrari in particular could be a lot closer to the fight this year? I've said it a thousand times already, which is that front-end turn-in is where that Ferrari F175 is specialised. And there are a lot of corners at Silverstone where, sure, you need grip to hang on, but getting the turn-in right is absolutely critical. The Maggots, Beckett's Chapel, Chicane section, which should never be changed ever. I can imagine Ferrari being pretty good going into there. And considering those are medium-speed corners, it'll probably be easier for them to get off the complex versus, say, the hairpin at Montreal. I can see some pretty good duels between the two teams if Ferrari bring their A game. Um, but again, it's also a track that where, where straight-line speed is very much facilitated, even in the medium straight, say, the run from, is it Luffield and Brooklands all the way over yeah, to Yeah, down to that, yeah. Yeah, so I... I think it's it's a track that doesn't necessarily suit one particular team. And to be honest, Silverstone has always been like this. It's why it's a classic. It's why it's one of, not a Telegraph reader, one of the best tracks on the calendar, objectively. <laughs> um, yeah, predictions for this week are going to be doubly difficult. Um, and, you know, there, are, there were some worries maybe about the track surface being eaten up by the hot summer. But judging by what the weather is like outside my window right now, I suspect it's going to be a very British weekend. So Lewis Hamilton will be very happy. Indeed, I can tell you right now, it is grey cloud outside my windows for recording this on Wednesday evening. You've, you've inspired me to look at the weather forecast for the weekend, and I can tell you it is expected showers on Friday about 19 degrees, cloudy Sunday 19 degrees, and then dry weather, a bit of sunshine on Sunday, a very small chance of rain, 20 degrees at most. So, yeah, the, I, I think the British weather, I can imagine it being typically annoying this weekend but you know nothing that's going to break the track up one thing that does have a habit of breaking up at silverstone though is tires and the amount of times we've seen in the last decade numerous tire blowouts at silverstone and pirelli effectively being told oh you've got to go back to square one on your tire designs now um let's firstly start off with the tire compounds they bought this year um josh they bought the c1 the c2 and the c3 tires to Silverstone so we've gone from effectively having the hardest compounds at every track this season to having now the hardest compounds at every at here at Silverstone I mean do you think that's somewhat a reaction to the very a I guess a very abrasive surface but also the significant stresses put on the tire that you typically see at Silverstone or I know do you think this is a just a reflection perhaps of you know, how Pirelli best see going about the weekend, especially even with these new tyres? Um, I mean, I'm looking at the comments that uh, Mario Isolos has sort of made uh, ahead of this weekend. He's talked about these tyres are designed for more stability, increased drivability and less overheating. So you assume that they've obviously looked back at, you know, past Grand Prix and they've sort of had have that very much at the forefront of their mind when deciding which compounds to take with them. Um, so I think it's, it's more of a case, I guess, of the former of what, of what you talked about. Um, um, but, uh, you know, it will be, again, it'll be really interesting to see how, how teams sort of manage it. And as, as Joe has alluded to, I mean, outside my window, it's quite sunny, but that doesn't necessarily equal warm. 
So we'll see mm-hmm. what that means weather-wise. But um, yeah, it, again, it, it it should be really interesting to see how teams sort of manage it and who's able to sort of, yeah, which drivers are able to sort of get the best out of them. And, you know, unfortunately, there may be one or two who have to suffer from some typos, unfortunately. Of course, another factor to consider, Joe, I mean, I'm just looking at another weather forecast on my phone. And again, a completely different outlook in terms of the weather and the chance of rain throughout the weekend. And I guess given the unpredictability of the great British weather, do you see perhaps, uh, I guess, firstly, what do you think the impact of um, unpredictable weather conditions could be, I guess, not just on the field this year, but and the pecking order, but also kind of just potentially on Silverstone and the track itself and how that would affect teams' calculations? Because it's such a high abrasion track and there's a lot of tyre degradation because of just the sheer load that you're putting on those tyres, even a slight decrease in track temperature, whether or not it results in any reduction in pace can be pretty big over the course of a few laps when it comes to tyre lifespan and tyre wear. Um, As for if the rain finally comes down, I've already said that suits Lewis Hamilton. Arguably his best ever win in Formula One was around a soaking wet Silverstone track. But I also think it will benefit the McLaren team massively because all the way through the season, they've been struggling for straight line speed. If you eliminate that as the the number one thing they're looking for with a car that looks to have a pretty well-developed chassis, I can see McLaren more or less praying for rain because at the moment it's still difficult to see where they, they really come out in the hierarchy. And let's not forget as well, one of their best weekends this season, again, in the changeable weather conditions at Imola. So certainly precedent set for that there. And yeah, a very good weekend to look forward to. Of course, Joe's mentioned how difficult some of these predictions are going to be this weekend. So in that spirit, we're going to make some next. Stay tuned here on the Armchair F1 podcast. Okay, it's time to make some predictions for the British Grand Prix this weekend. Before we start, let's just take a look at the predictions from last time out um, at the Canadian Grand Prix. And just to remind you, it's some inspired predictions, I think. Starting, should we start off with Rory? Who, let's just actually, let's say this. We all predicted Charles Leclerc to get pole. So a pretty straight one there that none of us got indeed quite definitely didn't get. Over yeah, that and, weekend. and having spent half an hour more or less discussing grid penalties for Charles Leclerc, we all conveniently forgot about them when it time to when it was time to make predictions. It did, I think the the prophecy. I think the the amount of times maybe over the summer break, I just need to go back and produce a whole compilation of us being prophets and just sit, hear our reactions to that. And that I think not a good moment of us being prophets. Um, in terms of the top three, so Rory went with Verstappen, Perez, and Gasly. He was the only one of us to predict a Max Verstappen victory. But I feel for Perez, which I can understand, but the diabolical prediction of Gasly and also Albon scoring points, completely invalidated in that. I went, so I went for a Charles Leclerc victory. Again, forgetting grid penalties. I then went with Verstappen in second, George Russell in third. Verstappen obviously winning the race in the end. Russell just off the podium. So I think perfectly reasonable set of predictions. My my f- predictions of both Stroll and Latifi binning the car and the wall of champions. You know, I felt I felt like I was giving their attraction to the wall. I felt like I was making some kind of point there. It just wasn't achieved in the end for me. So very sad indeed. But Joe, I'm giving the point to you this week. Um, you did predict the Claire victory, but Verstappen in second, Sainz in third. So two out of three podium finishes. Plus two out of three of your miscellaneous predictions coming true. Um, there were a few of them for retirements. 
Lewis Hamilton did outqualify and outrace George Russell. Lance Stroll, however, so nearly you got that third miscellaneous prediction of no Canadians in the points right. You'd be amazed just how angry I was when Lance <laughs> Stroll got past Daniel Ricciardo. Everything was falling into place. I felt like a genius. But of course, Ricciardo had to let me down. Okay, well, let's move on to Silverstone now and to the predictions this weekend. Um, I'm going to say, well, I will go first. And in terms of pole position, looking at the one lap pace, I think looking particularly at the turning speed as well, into Maggots and Beckett's, I think the fact that the Ferrari is going to be a very difficult car um, to beat in Sector 2. And the fact that, yeah, it's still a reasonably good car in a straight line as well. Put all of that together. I'm going for another shoulder Claire pole this weekend. And I'm confident there'll be no grid penalties to get in the way. So shoulder Claire on pole for me. Um, Joe, what are you predicting? Exactly the same for me, uh, on account of the fact that Leclerc changed everything, more or less, at Canada, take the absolute maximum grid penalty. I, I can't see anything having failed after that comeback drive. He's going to have a relatively fresh PU on a track that he's also fantastic at. I'm sorry, Hamilton fans. Charles Leclerc deserved the win last year. He was comfortably the best driver all weekend. That was probably the best drive any driver had in any race last year for me. Charles Leclerc on pole for Ferrari. Josh, are we going to make it three out of three? Yeah, I don't think um I, I don't think there's any point being clever and trying to go a different answer here. Um he's he's got a fresh power unit, he's had a very good track record on this track. Um and just uh, across one lap, yeah, I, I think Charles Leclerc will be on pole. So a w- three out of three again for a Charles Leclerc pole. Let's let's see if we can get that one this time. I think certainly I think people do very easily forget. Charles Leclerc is impressive one lap pace. And you know, the fact back in 2019, he was the driver with the most pole positions. The fact that, you know, through even throughout last year, he got numerous pole positions for Ferrari. I guess it's just the reliability and the race pace relative to Red Bull and Verstappen that's been letting him down. But, you know, qualifying pace on a Saturday, you know, is very hard to beat Charles Leclerc. In terms of the race, I am I am predicting finally he's going to end Red Bull's six win, um, six win streak. And we are actually going to see Charles Leclerc convert a Charles Leclerc pole into the race victory. I think with the characteristics of the track at Silverstone, the fact obviously um, Leclerc's got the new PU as well. He, I just feel his record around Silverstone, everything coming together. I think it's going. I do think we're going to have a very good Leclerc for Stappen battle. I do think it is going to be similar to the first two races in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. I think in terms of how back and forth it is, but I do think Leclerc is going to win this one. And Verstappen is going to come in a very close second. And then I'd like to say Boyd off Canada, I think, building on from that. And the fact that I do think, again, it's going to be a very close battle between the number twos. But I do think Carlos Sainz is going to come out and take third hit at Silverstone. Um, Josh, let's come to you first. Your top three. Um, I believe Leclerc will convert his poll to a win. Um, so that's not going to be a different. Um, I think as much as we talk about uh, Max wanting to put things right from last year, Silverstone, Leclerc also will want to put things right. He was leading the race at one point. I think he'll have the hunger to to sort of, I guess, let out that frustration of the last few races. Um, and I think he'll win. I think Max will be second. Um, and then this is where... Hmm. And then this is where I, whether I struggle with 
Oh, I don't know. I, I, this is the, this is the part where I'm not sure how much home advantage is going to come into play for the Mercedes drivers, whether just as a, just a random out there pick that somehow one of them will end up on the podium. But I think, um, Ooh, yeah, no, I will go. No. Yeah. I'll go safe. I'll say Sergio Perez, uh, for third. I'm not going to go there with Mercedes. Um, Although I do think they will get a lift from the home crowd. Okay. And Joe, finally, your top three. Max Verstappen to convert another Charles Leclerc pole into a victory. I'm sorry. Leclerc to come home second. Lewis Hamilton to secure third place in front of his home crowd. I think, well, I wouldn't say a bold set of predictions. I mean, Verstappen Leclerc is a pretty, I think, yeah, pretty reasonable and certainly on, on trend. I think just because you're breaking from the Leclerc mould there, but you're, you're going on trend. And Lewis Hamilton, to be fair, good record around Silverstone. He always loves coming here. And Boyd, by the home fans, he always does produce a good drive. So, yeah, I think these are, these are I think, are three very competitive sets. And you've no one's put Pierre Gasly on the podium. That's what matters most here. Um, I need some miscellaneous predictions now. So I'm going to start off and say I think this is the weekend where George Russell's top five streak is going to come to an end. I think it's going to be top four between Red Bull and Ferrari. And I think within the intra-team Mercedes battle, I think Boyd from Canada and his historical record here at Silverstone, I think that Lewis Hamilton is going to come fifth and George Russell is going to finish sixth or seventh if Fauci Bottas has a Valtteri Bottas-esque weekend. Because Valtteri Bottas' record, let's not forget about that. His record at Silverstone is pretty decent as well, especially on that one-lap pace. So I'm going to go with George Russell, his top five race day streak to come to an end. Joe, what is your miscellaneous prediction? I kind of hope this doesn't come true. However, this is one of the first true racetracks we've come to. It's obviously very open, quite f- forgiving in terms of pushing the cars. However, if you make a mistake, you get it wrong badly. I am predicting a red flag inside the first 15 laps. Okay, and certainly we've seen some pr- quite dramatic crashes here at Silverstone in the last few years. So certainly not out- outside the realms of possibility. Um, Josh, your prediction, your miscellaneous prediction. This is just one prediction, right? To be clear, this is yeah, just, just one. one. Okay, all right. Or um, however many you feel. Unless, no. unless it's really, really safe, and we will force you to do an accumulator, like right. I did last week. I, d- I don't think this is a safe prediction. I am going to say Alex Albon scores points. Um, okay, that's my bold one going off off the fact that and. He has he did score points in Australia. He came tenth, and I think, uh, from whatever reason, my brain is equating both tracks to be so of similar. Um, and granted, I do think some cars are gonna they're gonna be a few DNFs and some underperforming cars. I can see Alex Albon sneaking into the top ten somehow. I think a really good set of predictions there between the three of us. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how race day pans out. Well, once again. Um, Josh and Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. It's fantastic as ever to have your insights. And thank you as well so much for listening. Um, the British Grand Prix is always a fantastic week. And, and we're really, really looking forward to seeing what comes of that. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we will get a Lewis Hamilton victory at some point. The dreams of Lewis Hamilton again in front of a home crowd 
that would be nice indeed. Well, we'll be back next week looking back at the British Grand Prix, plus ahead to, yeah, perhaps one of my favourite tracks of the season, the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring. Always serves up a good race. We're going to be looking at that as well next week. As ever, though, thanks for listening. Make sure to like and follow on the cross social media and as well, listen to the podcast across all major streaming platforms. You've been listening to the Armchair F1 podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Sure.